2: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan LeBell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to welcome Michelle Murray, Associate Professor of Political Science at Bard College, to discuss her new book, The Struggle for Recognition in International Relations, Status, Revisionism, and Rising Powers, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Welcome to New Books Network, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, Tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book. What was some of the motivations?
0: So the book started as a dissertation that I wrote at the University of Chicago. And when I was first thinking about what I wanted to write on, I noticed that constructivist IR at the time had mainly focused on explaining cooperation, but not so much conflict. That has changed a lot since then, but that was one of the kind of um, motivating impulses I had was to think about how social factors explain cooperate or explain conflict in the international system. So that was the first. And the second was that the conventional wisdom on power transitions had limited explanatory power, I thought. The conventional wisdom typically says that power transitions are destabilizing to the international order, that they always end in war. And the second thing that they say is that the primary cause of conflict during a power transition is the differential growth of power between a rising power and a declining power. This is a kind of strategic or balance of power argument. And when I looked out in the world, both of those claims seemed insufficient in explaining what is perhaps one of the most important phenomenon to happen in international relations. So not all power transitions end in war. One- only has to look at the very consequential Anglo-American transition, which I explore in the book, uh, for a case in point. Second, a strategic or balance of power argument didn't seem to capture for me the foreign policy decisions that rising powers in particular make during power transitions. So for example, why was Imperial Germany so fixated on building a navy that could rival Great Britain? Why did it devote resources away from its army? What it needed to invest in if it really wanted to shift the balance of power to build its so-called luxury fleet. And if you look throughout history, you see similar kinds of behaviors, the fixation on nuclear primacy during the Cold War, China's focus on building a carrier fleet. And I thought to myself, why are rising powers in particular so fixated with symbolic military capabilities? And so it was that kind of puzzle that I saw out there in the world that led me to want to think about the social dimensions of power transitions, which is what the book is about.
2: And one of the sort of fascinating parts of the book is how your focus, that it. it's just, it's not inevitable that this outgrowth of military power or, or some sort of objective assessment is what was, is is what allows a pan a power to manage itself and to peacefully rise. It's something else. Um, and, and you're, you're asking us to focus on how the actions of the rising powers are interpreted or perceived by others you you see these power transitions as struggles for for recognition more like a social construction um rather than something that is uh you know um, an objective measurement so i was wondering if you could start us off by helping us understand the um the main argument of the book? How is recognition of identity so important in establishing powers? Why does that matter for a peaceful rise of new power in an international system?
0: One of the things that I try to argue in the book is that not all power transitions end in war, and not all revisionist rising powers are perceived to be threats. Um, And this is a really important point. So I'm not talking about the behavior of rising powers in some sense, right? All rising powers act in a revisionist kind of way. So American uh, ambition as it was rising to hegemony in the Western hemisphere was profound. It acquired seven times the amount of territory as imperial Germany. Yet instead of moving to contain growing american power britain accommodated it right it looked at at american power as something that wasn't a threat so so that's it's it's not the behavior it's the way in which the established powers perceive what is actually an objective thing right the us had a certain number of battleships imperial germany had a certain number of battleships and so there's a perceptual element but when i say that power transitions are um, a social phenomenon that they are about the struggle for recognition. What I'm saying essentially is that rising powers want status. So they don't just want security and wealth, they also want status. And status is about establishing an identity. And that requires recognition. Other powers have to see you as the kind of state that you want to be. And so this is, for me, what power transitions are about. They're trying to secure a place atop the social hierarchy in the international order and trying to cope with the uncertainty that defines this process. And so mine is a social theory of power transitions because I suggest that a lot of the material competition that characterizes power transitions, the acquisition of military power, the expansionist of foreign policies, the taking of territory, sometimes war grows out of the anxieties that rising powers have about their identities and their social status in the system. And whether or not the established powers are going to recognize them, are going to see them as the kind of actor that they want to be. Um, and that it is ultimately the outcome of the power trans- transition is dependent upon whether or not that social relationship between the established power and the rising power is able to convey recognition. And I think this is important. It's important to realize this because if you, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, the implications for policy and other things, but it's really important to understand what rising powers want if you're going to create a foreign policy um, toward that, right? You can't interact with other states without knowing what they want. And I think a lot of IR has missed one of the big things that rising powers want. It's not stuff, it's status.
2: So you mentioned revisionists. And uh, we have a lot of listeners to this podcast who are incredibly familiar with the language of IR. And then we have other people who aren't. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions that maybe can uh, help some of the listeners uh, get their feet grounded. First, um, Pull back the lens and just explain the difference between IR, comparative politics, area studies, and military history. As you look at this book or just picked up this book, you might think it was military history or you might think it was comparative politics because you're looking at two case studies, Germany and the United States. Can you just help the listeners understand how your discipline helps explain um, politics in a different way, just so that everybody can kind of be on the same page. And if you could also remind everybody what revisionism in your field means, because I think it means something different in all of our subfield. Right, right.
0: So revisionism simply means whether or not a state is going to essentially play by the rules of the international order at the time, or if it's going to try to change them. So, does it abide by the norms and conventions that define a particular historical period or not? Um, Revisionist states do things like start international crises, take territory. So, taking territory is one of the most revisionist things a state could do. Um, And so, it's basically who's playing by the rules and who's not playing by the rules. And generally, within the field of international relations, we presume. I think rightfully so that the established power, the hegemon in the system defines the rules for any particular period of time. So the most powerful states define the rules. A revisionist state wants to change those rules or wants to change the distribution of resources or the distribution of power in the system. So they want to kind of change the organizing ideas and norms that guide the system at any given time. So what makes this book international relations? So on a really basic level, I'm looking at the interactions between states. So I'm looking at the the interactions between Imperial Germany and Great Britain, between Britain and the United States at the turn of the 20th century. That's different than comparative politics, even though I do have a comparative historical method to my international relations. Comparative politics tends to look at differences within the states. So a comparative politics scholar might explain the same thing by saying the political system within Germany looked different and it allowed you know, parochial interests to capture foreign policy in ways that the United States didn't um, as a democracy. So they look more at the kind of comparisons of factors within states that might lead to different outcomes. I'm really interested in what goes on in between states, the interactions that states have with each other. I think what makes this different than military history is that I am really one I'm interested in the theory. So I'm interested in something that I can take and use to understand other cases at other points in time and to importantly make policy prescriptions for the future. That's something that a military historian I don't think would do. Um, But I'm also not sort of really interested in studying particular military um strategic decision-making. I draw on that to build evidence for my case, but I'm not sort of interested in those, those things in their own right. I'm interested in them as part of a broader pattern that guides the state's interactions.
2: How, how did you come to choose these two cases?
0: So I had always been interested in Imperial Germany because their battleship program makes little to no sense from a strategic perspective. It was just a really, it's one of the kind of epically foolish things that have happened in history. And so explaining that is one of the kind of big cases that international relations scholars have thought about. Historians have thought quite a bit about it too. Um, And so there's something that doesn't make sense about that case. And so Imperial Germany was the kind of anchor of the book, and it was the thing that I focused on most in my dissertation, which was the predecessor of the book. Um, and I added the US case because it made sense from the perspective of my argument, in that you know, one of the things I'm saying is that there's nothing inevitable about a power transition. It's not just simply about the shifts in the balance of power. And so here I had two cases that were happening in a similar period of time where you had two radically different outcomes. And so there's a I think a fruitful lesson to be learned um between the two, putting the two cases side by side and thinking through why it went so wrong in one case and it was able to go right so right in the other.
2: And case. uh just so everyone again understands, um how is your research done? Do you what what are you pulling from? What kind of work are you doing? Uh, are you doing work in the countries? Tell us just a little bit more about exactly how you, how you wrote the book and what you were pulling from.
0: So for the case studies, I relied some on the political science literature. These are both big cases within international relations. So I obviously looked to the existing scholarship within the field. Um, they're both cases which have a rich historiography to each of them. So I read those secondary sources about it. But then I also did do archival research in London and in um, the United States for the U.S. military, uh, U.S. Naval program as well. So I looked at actual primary source documents of leaders writing to each other, leaders reflecting on decision making, thinking about the importance of things. So there's a, there's a primary source element to this as well, to try to untangle or think about the factors that were on the minds of both German and American leaders and British leaders as they were working through these two power So were you
2: reading memos or diaries, letters? What kind of primary documents were you um, looking through in the archives?
0: All of the above. Um, I think for me, what were the most enlightening or the most kind of important documents were memos that leaders were writing. So German leaders or British leaders talking to each other. So cases where there wasn't an audience that might you know, have implicated what and how they said. So the language of status can be very seductive for domestic political purposes. So if a leader gets in front of you know a crowd and talks about status, that might may or may not actually reflect what the kind of inner circle is thinking about about the foreign policy making. But when you have leaders in a closed room who are saying we need to do this because, you know, we've been disrespected by the British, that suggests that that's actually something that's driving their decision making. So the things I was most interested in were kind of internal deliberations about decision. making
2: Throughout the book, when you write about states, you, you sort of you talk about them as if they are unified ap- actors. You'll say that you know the state attempts to become independent, et cetera. Uh, and I'm wondering how a state constructs an identity an identity. Like, how is it that the state acts as a unified actor? What if the states are what if the people within the states have very different ideas about the kind of identity that they're looking for in the international uh, sphere?
0: Now, I think that's a really important question. And I think no theory of anything explains everything. You have to make some assumptions in order to do the work that you need to do. And so one of the assumptions that's very common in international relations and common even within constructivist international li- relations is that we Anthropomorphize the state. So we treat the state as if it were a person um, and can say that person has, you know, an identity or a a dominant way of thinking about themselves, a a certain self understanding. Um, Obviously, that doesn't capture reality perfectly, but I do think it captures something important about foreign policy decision making. So, one, you know, it is a relatively small group of um, people that are making decisions for a foreign policy in any given state, and they represent a certain kind of self-understanding. Secondly, I think the self-understanding, as I conceptualize it in the book, is drawn from domestic discourses that tend to coalesce around um, certain kinds of identities. So even if you look at the United States, while there's obviously a difference between the foreign policy, say, of Barack Obama and that of George W. Bush, there's a kind of general lane that both of them are operating in. And if you look, there's kind of very similar patterns of talking about the US and the US's role in the world that I think you know, was certainly the case at the turn of the 20th century as well. So there's certain discourses that predominate within countries. And, it, and that's really what I'm looking at as a kind of coalescing sense of how the state understands its position in the world um, what kind of status does it want to occupy in the system and so that's really what I'm talking about when I say an identity it's a it's a role identity um, a role that they want to play in the international system and I think it makes sense it, you can you can you know make that simplifying assumption and it's still you know a useful way to think about it
2: do you think there are situations where that's sort of, I don't know, um, a harder assumption to make, sort of aberrant cases in which the foreign policy of the new leader, in fact, can't be understood within the history of identity formation of that particular nation state?
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify.
0: Definitely. I mean, the United States right now might be a case, right? Trump talks about the United States' role in the world in a very different way than, than really anyone has in, you know, a hundred years at least, um, right? Not really talking about the United States as the leader of the international order, but a much more nationalist, isolationist way of thinking. I think that's, you know, I think that is somewhat of an aberration that, you know, people have to think about. Um, But I also think there are, you know, at the point in which I'm theorizing things, I think that that identity has sort of coalesced. So there are other scholars like Stephen Ward, for example, who looks at those domestic political processes and how different claims to status in the international system can empower certain domestic political actors. You know that that uh, in certain conditions, more revisionist or aggressive foreign policy actors can come to power with with the rhetoric of status, um, and that's a total. My my analysis doesn't preclude that. I'm sort of looking at what happens once that that way of thinking has sort of coalesced into the decision making.
2: So before we get to the theory chapters two and three, um, very quickly. You're you're challenging the conventional win, uh, wisdom, Gilpin um, and others. Can you just very quickly, since it comes up over and over again in these theory chapters, just remind people realism versus constructivism, and how you fit into constructivism. You, you acknowledge an enormous debt to Alex Went and liberal constructivism, but I think you also see yourself as departing from Wendt in very important ways. So if you could just very quickly get us into that realism versus constructivism place and then just place yourself, I think that would really help.
0: So realists think that international politics is principally about the balance of power. And so it is that kind of conventional wisdom about power transitions, but even more broadly that states um, fear each other. They think other states could be a threat. They acquire power in order to just forestall those threats. There are tragic consequences of that security dilemma, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what they see there is the world is kind of driven by this materialist logic. States look out in the world they see other states that have material power and then they worry about that they build their own material power etc what constructivists say is that material power military power in and of itself has no meaning it's the ideas we have about that military power that shapes foreign policy decision making it shapes who we see as an enemy and who we see as a friend right so it's really a social structure this conditioning outcomes in the system, not a material balance of power structure. And Alex Wint is the progenitor of this viewpoint in international relations. He was my uh, advisor and mentor. And I, and on that very basic sense, I am 100% a constructivist, and I'm a Wintian constructivist. I take states as actors. I say they have identities, and I think social structures matter in shaping outcomes. Where I depart from Wendt is that his particular writings on recognition see it as having a kind of progressive emancipatory potential. So struggles for recognition resolve themselves and community enlarges. And so there's always, it's, it's very much kind of relations of recognition produce cooperation and it produces for him particularly deep forms of cooperation over time. And what I'm arguing in the book is actually, no, the struggle for recognition isn't defined by the emergence and enlargement of political community, but actually um, is kind of plagued and marred by fears of uncertainty. And that leads states to do things that actually prevent community from emerging or can prevent community from emerging. And so I'm sort of a pessimistic constructivist to whence more optimistic
2: constructivism. Oh, that's very helpful. Thank you. Well, let's let's talk about state identity and uh uncertainty um and the sort of the, the meat of your of the the sort of the theory argument of the book and then we'll also talk a little bit about the German case and the American case because it's it's a it's a really interesting comparison. So help us understand what it is that you are explaining about this struggle for recognition? What is, what is the content of it? What, how does it, how does, how does creating identity, uh, help solve the problem of uncertainty or threaten it, depending on which identities you choose?
0: Right. So the argument. I think has two basic steps where the struggle for recognition is decisively shaping things. The first is that it shapes state behavior. And the second is that it shapes the outcome of the power transition. So the first really gets to the question you just asked. Um, And the way that I think about that is to ask the question, why do rising powers often pursue risky and expansionist foreign policy? So I'm trying to explain this particular kind of behavior that rising states have. Had throughout history, and my argument is that it has to do with identity formation. And so it's the ways in which states construct and form their identities that lead to this behavior. So I begin with a very simple assumption that rising powers want to be recognized as great powers in the system. But this process of establishing an identity is deeply uncertain because it depends on the unpredictable recognition responses of other states. So you can't have an identity by yourself. You need to have other people recognize it, or you can't have the kinds of identities I'm talking about by yourself. Other people have to recognize you in that role in order for you to be able to, to in any way, meaningfully have that identity. Um, And so identity formation requires recognition. And I argue that recognition is a deeply uncertain process because this, the recognition responses of other states are inherently unpredictable. You don't know if another state is going to recognize you as the kind of actor that you want to be. And rising powers in particular fear this because they're trying to assume a new role in the system. And so as they emerge to take on that role, they don't know whether the established powers are going to recognize them. And they fear misrecognition. And so this makes them feel very socially insecure. And so I argue that to cope with this uncertainty and retain some control over the meaning of their identity, that states anchor their desired identities to what I call symbolic material practices or recognitive practices. What this means is there are certain things that established great powers have and do that make them identifiable as great powers. They possess certain kinds of military power battleships, nuclear weapons, aircraft carriers, and they undertake certain kinds of foreign policy behaviors, building spheres of influence, for, for example, right? There's kind of, if you want to be a great power, you need to sort of walk and talk like a great power. You, you want to act like you are a member of the club, even if you haven't been officially recognized as one yet. And what this does this attachment to the material world is it reflects back to the state the identity that it seeks to have and thus eases the insecurity that it has as it tries to obtain recognition so the rising power can say see look I have a big powerful navy I look like you know great britain I imperial germany can say I look like great britain we have these big battleships we're a real player in the system so as it tries to capture Britain's recognition, which it needs in order to have that role in the system, the material world kind of provides some security. It eases that anxiety about whether or not Britain is going to recognize them, for example.
2: Um, do you want to give us the American version of that for the contrast or what? I th- that would seem maybe helpful for those who haven't read the book to sort of understand the difference. So so how is it that Germany tried to do that and the U.S. tried to do that, but there were very, very different outcomes?
0: Right. And so this is sort of the second piece of the argument is on the power transition outcomes. Whether a power transition ends in war or peace depends on whether or not a rising power is recognized. Um, And what happens with recognition is that it legitimizes power. So it says, yes, you have this power. You have the right to play this role in the system. Um, You know, you're secure and you're you're able to, to go out in the world and act the way that you see yourself. And if you're not recognized, what's essentially happening is that the established powers are saying, no, you don't have a seat at the table. You don't have the right to be the kind of status actor in the system that you think you are. And so when you continue to act that way, you're understood to be a threat. So what happens in the U.S. case is, um, as I said previously, the United States pursued an incredibly aggressive foreign policy at the turn of the 20th century. They took a ton of territory in the Pacific and in the Caribbean in particular. um, They waged aggressive wars. They built a huge battle fleet seemingly overnight. The U.S. went from basically being a non-existent naval power to being one of the top naval powers in the world in a very short period of time. So built a lot. The the foreign policy in an objective sense was quite aggressive. But the British didn't interpret U.S. aggression as a threat. And what happened was um, in the Venezuelan crisis, uh, the U.S. and Britain were caught up in this crisis over a boundary dispute. And they threatened to go to war with one another. And... What happens at that moment is that you see British leaders recast the relationship as one of friendship, that the United States kind of shares a common goal in the world with Britain, that they, that they're going to be partners in, in working together, that they have the same sets of interests and values. And what this essentially relied on was a, was an Anglo-Saxon discourse Mm -hmm. that the United States and um, Britain have this sort of historical, cultural um, history together, and that this made them ideal partners going forward. And it was that kind of reimagining of the relationship that allowed Britain to see the United States power not as a threat, but as something that could be um, cooperative, that could be within British interest. And so what happens is you see during the Spanish American War, Britain taking actions to essentially restrain European powers to allow the United States to defeat Spain in that war. And then uh, later on with the building of the Panama Panama Canal, allow the United States to really become a regional hegemon. And this is really surprising from an IR perspective or from that realist perspective, because great powers are not supposed to help other great powers become regional hegemons, that that would be seen as something that's incredibly um, jeopardizing to their own security. And so it's an unexpected outcome that we wouldn't necessarily predict.
2: So how much control does the state have on the perceptions? In other words, as the United States is doing this, Uh, how are they actively manipulating the narrative of Anglo-Saxon discourse and similarity in order to get Great Britain to have this reaction? Or is this something that comes out of a a narrative that the British uh, adopt from uh, their, their, their own interests or their own perceptions? In other words, if the theory is about how a state constructs its identity how much of it is within the power of that state and how much of it is luck and or whatever is is perceived on the other side how much control do you see
0: so i think there's definitely a lot of agency um, but there are certainly some conditions. So Anglo-Saxonism was a powerful cultural discourse that existed within the United States and within Britain. And so what it was, was it was leaders who could see that they wanted to capitalize on this thing that was getting a lot of attention in both places. So there was already that kind of cultural, discursive, raw material floating around out there that leaders were then able to use to construct a narrative that made sense, that was consonant with both Britain's understanding of itself and its place in the world in a way that could accommodate the United States and vice versa, right? That the United States could become the kind of world power that it wanted to be consistent with this narrative. And so I think you can't invent these kinds of discourses out of thin air. They already have to be there. There has to be some raw discursive raw material out there but absolutely, leaders have the narrative power to tell the story of a state in a way that makes it, um, that makes cooperation possible. And so I think that's that's why the U.S. case is so important for me, is that it shows that power transitions are not inevitable. There's actually a ton of agency, both within the established power and the rising power, to shape their narratives in ways that allow a peaceful power transition to happen.
2: When you speak about a narrative about Anglo Saxon uh, continuity, are there more than one narrative floating around at the time? In other words, as you look at the cases, are you seeing several competing narratives, and this is the one that uh, allows the United States to successfully cast itself as a friend, as an extension of um, the world that the British. Believe that they are controlling, you know, or is it that there is a singular narrative that is being pursued? No,
0: there's definitely multiple narratives, and the fleet within the United States was obviously also contested. Like there wasn't, you know, the idea of the United States becoming a world power wasn't an inevitable thing. There was a lot of distrust of a kind of strong centralized state, and and there were lots of reasons for the United States to not go this route um and so the idea that becoming a world power was just a sort of taken for granted thing i think is not the case but what i saw in the case was really british leaders reaching out and trying to construct the narrative in ways that would appeal to the united states and so it wasn't so much that the rising power thought how can i make this work so that the british recognize me it was the the british saying like we need to make this happen um and then using the narrative in order to to construct friendship. Uh, so I think it's not just simply a kind of strategic choice on the part of a rising power, though it certainly could be. Um, but it's both sides that that the established power and the rising power can talk a similar kind of language about the power transition. And that and that involves You know, there there absolutely are contested narratives. Um, And I think what it involves is, and there's a lot of work by Ronald Krebs in particular about how narratives are constructed to be powerful. And so there is a kind of social power politics to the way in which narratives are constructed to be appealing in certain kinds of political moments in order to mobilize support.
2: You're mentioning power and construction. It reminds me that as as I was reading through the chapter is on both the United States and Germany. Gender seemed absent, it really seemed very little attention to that. And I'm wondering what role you believe gender plays in the construction of these kinds of narratives.
0: I think that the narratives of power politics are, they're sort of incredibly gendered, <laughs> they're masculine kinds of narratives, I think. Um, you know, it, it, and in particular in the United States, it was very much a kind of manifest destiny, you know, that the United States had a responsibility to go out and civilize the world. And this was to be our, you know, to spread democracy, you know, features that I think still are prominent in a lot of US foreign policy thinking. And so I think that while I didn't foreground gender, As a dimension of the narratives, I would have no problem saying that they were incredibly masculine ways of thinking about power, of thinking about the United States' role in the world, thinking about Germany's role in the world, et cetera. Um, These are very masculine ways of thinking.
2: Um, Before we run out of time, let's talk a little bit about the German case and which parts of it do you think do the kind of work of the book, as opposed to just providing the contrast with the United States, say a little bit more about that case and some of the, the conclusions that it helps you uh, reach?
0: So the case is puzzling for many reasons. Um, I think the most important of which is Germany is a rising power it is in a very unique Geopolitical situation. It's got Russia on one side, France on another, Britain just across the Channel. So it's it's this nearly landlocked, incredibly grow uh, this landlocked great power, emerging great power that has a ton of potential power to really append the the European balance of power. Um, and this land power. It's a land power. Its principal threats are on the land, on the continent, yet it builds this big, lavish navy that it doesn't even have, you know, the right ports or coaling stations in place to do anything with. So it's really, you know, when it's called a luxury fleet, it really is a luxury luxury fleet. It doesn't have, you know, Germany doesn't have the global interest that Britain did that required a navy that could you know, police the entire world. And so the fact that Germany devoted almost, I think, I forget the precise statistic, but I think like 60 some percent of its military budget to building this Navy, is just puzzling because from a security standpoint, it should have invested all of those resources into the army. Um, and so that's the kind of first thing, is that the foreign policy doesn't make a lot of sense. And so there's a kind of inherent question there. And so what what it does is it allows me to kind of track the ways in which this fixation on symbolic military power guides a state into a kind of very foolish foreign policy situation. And what you see throughout the various episodes in, in German foreign policy is that it's fixated at these points in time with status and with obtaining recognition from Britain. And so it really allows me to sort of trace how the struggle for recognition pays out, plays out and how it leads to very suboptimal outcomes.
2: Is there something I have not asked you about this book that you think listeners should know before they go buy a copy?
0: I think that one of the things the book tries to do is it builds out this very complicated social theory of power transitions. And it uses these two historical case studies to really try to get us to think differently about contemporary politics. And so I would say, you know, one of the most important thoughts that I hope this book provokes in people is to think about what The United States and China's relationship going forward can look like. And when you look at US foreign policy and the pivot to Asia and the kind of actions, you know, should we engage? Should we contain? To sort of challenge the assumptions that are underlying those policies to think about what would a policy of recognition toward China look like? Is there a way to recognize China as a great power in the system? In the coming years,
2: well, what do you think are some of the options out there? What kind of narratives are are available for the United States in order to to make such a a pivot?
0: I think there are two possibilities. The one requires a bit of reflexive thinking on the part of the United States, and so I think that U.S. visions of global leadership. Trump notwithstanding, um, don't have much room for China. So if the the liberal international order is really a US led international order, and it's really about the United States and its values and principles, then there's not going to be a lot of room for China in this. So the US is going to have to recognize that it itself cannot solely define the international order. And I think that that will be a that will be a kind of narrative reconstruction that has to happen within the United States. Um, the second thing is that there isn't the kind of cultural discursive raw material floating around out there in the system right now to do a to to construct a narrative between the U.S. and China. Before the twenty sixteen election, I think I would have said climate change might be an exogenous mm-hmm. shock from which a common narrative might be constructed. And I think, interestingly, China has, in important ways, placed climate change, even though you know there's a lot of work to be done there, um, as one of the kind of pillars of its leadership in the system. Right? Xi went to Davos right after Trump's inauguration and basically said China will lead on climate change. And so, I wonder if climate actually might be an area where a kind of discourse of cooperation, great power cooperation or great power concert, might emerge.
2: So what uh, project are you working on right now, Michelle?
0: So I am trying to think through actually some of these things regarding China. It's the conclusion of the book, so I don't say a ton there about it. I'm trying to flesh out in my own mind, what would a recognition-based foreign policy look like? So take these very theoretical
2: ideas and translate
0: them into policy.
2: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to explain your book. Um, For those listening, The Struggle for Recognition in International Relations, Status, Revisionism, and Rising Powers is available from Oxford University Press 2019. Uh, You can find it on the Oxford University Press website. You can find it in your usual online providers. And um, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me.